when Brother Tom Hall from Bowling Green, he will always say at the start of a lesson to hold up your Bible. I don't know if you've heard that, heard him say that. He's been here many times. But I'm going to ask you to do that this morning. Some of you may have a book. Some of you may have hold it, held up your phone right there. I didn't, don't see any scrolls floating around, but I guess we've not went too deep into it. But I want to start with three, excuse me, with four scriptures from the Bible. Okay? So we're going to start together. I want you to see each of these with me to start with. We're going to start with John chapter 1 and verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. You can follow along with me on each of these. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This verse establishes who Jesus was and Jesus' connection to God. Go a handful of verses down to John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word, the Word is capitalized there just as it was in verse 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of, excuse me, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this verse shows us how that Jesus, the Son of God, became human. We'll see that here today as well. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Matthew 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Now you might have heard the first verse. In the beginning was the word, the word. You might have thought, okay, well that makes sense. And you may have heard the second verse, John 1 and 14, that Jesus dwelt among us, but there needed to be a little clarification as to how that Jesus got here. Was this like a movie scene where somebody just appears out of the blue and they're, you know, oh, this guy's here to help me. Well, Matthew 1 verse 23 says that how Jesus, uh, excuse me, how Jesus as Son of God and humanity came together. Okay? And the fourth one, what Jameson read there just a few moments ago, we're only going to take a couple of verses of that, but Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I want to look at verses 5 through 8. We read it, but we'll look at it again. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So in four verses... We've looked at God, Jesus' connection to God. We've looked at Jesus' connection to us. We've looked at how Jesus came to earth. And we've also seen that while on earth, Jesus did not wear a crown and sit on a big throne and, and, and make himself, you know, you know, if we're one, he's one and a half. He's a little, you know, kind of in the middle there between. But it relates how that Jesus became a human being uh, and that was a conscious decision by him. We're going to talk today 
about Jesus as the Son of Man. And how this can be a somewhat complex term that's used. You'll sometimes hear Son of God and Son of Man. But how both of these natures can be found in Jesus. And how we can maybe learn a little bit from this in the process. And so this is what our task is going to be to start with. We're going to start with Jesus as the Son of Man. This designation, this description of one, is frequently used by Jesus. I suspect all of you have used a statement similar to the Son of Man to describe yourself. But you probably said that you were the son of so-and-so, and you gave your mother's name or your father's name. Or you maybe said, I am the daughter of, or my mom was, but these designations make sense to us even today. But Jesus quite often used this son of man designation. So the thought is, and what we're going to think about today is, what maybe does that mean? Why do we see this term? And then we'll look a little bit about these man characteristics that perhaps Jesus had on earth as well. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's talking about himself there, and he uses the term Son of Man to describe himself. But I would have maybe said, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Shelby or Deb has no place to lay their head, right? I would have used that term to describe my mother or father to describe me, but he says the Son of Man. A couple of our chapters earlier, or later, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, so he uses that term twice in the span of about eight chapters in Matthew. And so if he's using it then, this is at least a term that is somewhat common. He refers to himself there in a couple of different verses about two completely different topics. He's saying, boy, I, you know, I'm the son of man, I need a place to lay my head. Who are these people over here saying that I am? So he's using this term quite a bit. So let's get into it perhaps a little bit more. What does Son of Man mean? Well, Son of Man is used about 85 times in the New Testament. 81 of the 85 times in the New Testament, from what I've seen, is it is used by Jesus. So it's a fairly common statement, fairly common descriptor of oneself. The four exceptions are all used in reference to Jesus. In John chapter 12 and verse 34, a multitude questions Jesus using of the term. In Acts 7 and verse 56, it was used by Stephen. And in Revelation chapter 1 and also verse 14, it was used by John. But the meaning of this term isn't super clear. Now, I've read a lot about it and I've read a lot of sort of opinions one way or the other, but it, it's kind of complex in part because we don't get a real good description from Jesus as to what this term means. We just sort of see it used as a descriptor. And so we're going to look at a little bit of context and maybe see if we can learn perhaps something about it. Number one, it's sometimes used simply to designate men. 
want you to go all the way back in your Old Testament to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. So, so there's no Jesus in the form of flesh. What about this? Is Old Testament writing? God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do? Or he has spoken, and will he not make it good? I've got up here on the screen Job 35 8, Jeremiah 49 18. They use it in a similar manner. But it's a descriptor here designated men. It says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. So it would seem here that a son of man would be in sort of supplication maybe to God, right? Because God is not that. So it's maybe something lower perhaps. But it was also used by God in speaking to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is about halfway through your Old Testament. If you're Job and Psalms and Proverbs, you'll see Ezekiel coming up in a couple of books later. But it's found about 93 times there in the book of Ezekiel, which is more than even Jesus uses it. So it's used quite often there. So if it's being used that many times in one book, it would make me think that even in the Old Testament times, this is a term that was fairly commonly applied to people. It was used to designate the Messiah as well. If you're in Ezekiel, you're pretty close to Daniel. Turn over to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So it seems here that Daniel is giving this sort of vision of what's going to come in the future. But he describes this image of one like the Son of Man. And so if you have an image like the Son of Man, that would imply that there's some sort of concept, some visual concept of what this Son of Man might be that Daniel compares to it. So when we look at this in context, it's not super clear still. I still don't know that I can give you a great answer from the Old Testament as to what the Son of Man meant. But I do know this. But these descriptors seem to connect Jesus with humanity. And it seems like that all of these sort of forthcoming statements, especially what Daniel says, is to show that Jesus would not be some God amongst the clouds who would sort of look down and dictate, but rather would be someone who would come to earth, live on earth, intertwining with the people while he was there. I think we can see that from it. He had, it would, this will be, Jesus as the Son of Man, how would he connect Jesus with humanity? Well, first we're going to see, we've already seen that he has an earthly mother, so do you. That he took on the form of man, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, you have done the same thing as well. And that he possessed human characteristics, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, that you have as well. 
And so I don't know if I can accurately answer exactly what Son of Man means, but Son of Man points to Jesus and the humanity of Him. So let's talk a little bit about that. Jesus, as we read James a few minutes ago, said in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, made himself of no reputation. That's an interesting way of describing. Because I was telling some kids the other day in school, and they, they, they said, do you remember every student you've ever had? And I got to thinking, if I had 100 kids a year, and now I'm taught for 20 years, that's about 2,000 people. And I told him, I said, well, I said, and I may have said this in here before too, but I said, I remember the ones that were really good and the ones that were really bad. But I said, if you come in here and behave and work to your abilities and make like a B, I said, I will remember your name and I will remember your face. But when I see you in the store, I will remember and I will think, I know that kid, but I can't remember who it was. The reality is a lot of the students in the room make of themselves no reputation, right? They're, they're, they're there. They do what they're supposed to do, and they sort of move on. I've had kids that were 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. I remember them. I've had kids that were three foot tall. I remember them. I've had kids that have been horrible. I remember them, and I see them in the paper, unfortunately. Right? And I've seen, but Jesus, it seems from what we read here, comes to earth to look kind of like me, kind of like you. Kind of like everybody else. Because if Jesus was the tallest guy in the room, if Jesus was the handsomest man in the room, people might would follow him for other reasons. We've talked about this in class before. Boone and I've talked about this before. George Washington is considered the father of the country in large part because he was six foot two. Because a tall person commands a little respect and sometimes the short person doesn't. That may not be right or wrong, fair or foul, but that's how it is. But we read that Jesus made himself of no reputation. He gave up everything that he had in heaven to live on earth. Let's talk about that for a second. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 8 and verse 9, we read that. And there's a footnote that I was coming across in the New American Standard Version that said, quote, he laid aside his privileges. Let's think about that term for just a second as what Jesus said. Think about the privileges that you might have. You might have used this term. It was a privilege to do this or that. The ability to lay that aside. Most of us, the things that we like to do, we don't give those things up. There's some things that we don't like to do, but the things that I have a privilege to do, I don't want to give that up. But it said there that Jesus sort of put all that aside. So imagine all the fun things that you get to do in life, all the good things that you get to do in life, put them over here in a box for a while, and you got to go do all the bad stuff. How many of us are eagerly signing up for that job? Doesn't sound great, right? That's not appealing in many cases to us. But his regard was different than ours. His regard was for others. Why do we like doing those things that we like to do? Well, because it's something that I benefit from. It's something that I enjoy. And if you don't like it, that's okay. I'm not asking you to be part of it. This is my stuff. But Jesus putting that stuff aside so that he could go and help others. How many of you, if I were to say you get 10 minutes in heaven this afternoon, think about what that 10 minutes would be like. Now, 
when the alarm rings or the bell rings and the 10 minutes are up, how many of you would be excited to come back to where you are right now? I doubt any of us would be, right? Because we don't really know what heaven is like, but we've heard it described and we have these mental images of what we think it is. And we think, well, that's going to be way better than anything here. Well, if I can have that, I'd rather not go to work tomorrow. <laughs> be a lot more fun, right? But Jesus had had all of that for an eternity and chose to come instead. We read that he took it upon himself, the form of a bondservant, the likeness of men in appearance as men, Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. That form of a bondservant, I want you to think about that for a second. A bondservant, a slave, someone who has to work for someone else along the way. The word form here comes from the Greek word morph, uh, M-O-R-P-H-E, but more specifically, it's the essential attributes shown in the form. It's not abstract. It's not this idea. It's something that truly exists. It's something that truly exists. And so Jesus came not as this sort of image of a bondservant, but in the form of a, a real, live, true thing that Jesus comes as. He comes as this bond servant. And when you come as a bond servant, you will have to live as a bond servant, right? We see from time to time, if you look historically back, people who were the king and their families had been the kings and queens for hundreds of years. And their kids, the only thing they have to be is the king or the queen. They don't really have to do anything. I start talking to students as freshmen and sophomores saying, what are we thinking about doing as a career? Because we got to start thinking real soon about how we're going to make money, how we're going to pay bills. But when your dad is the king, you don't really have to worry about any of that, right? Well, when you come to earth as the son of God, you shouldn't have to worry about that, right? But the reality is he came as the son of God, but in the form of man, meaning he had to deal with all the issues that you and I would have to deal with as well. John chapter 1 and verse 14 said what? The word become flesh. Romans 1 and 13. I'm going to hit on several verses here along the way. Uh, so the word becomes flesh. I'm going to hit on a few things along the way. And these are all scriptures. You're welcome to turn to all of them. We're not going to look necessarily at all of them. But starting in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. Jesus was born of flesh. How many of you remember when your child, niece, nephew, somebody in your life was born, right? Jesus was born in the same way that you or me or my children or your children were born as well. And that would have been a moment of excitement. Certainly would have been a moment of nervousness. I don't know. Uh, I, I knew that Mary had things under control when Will was born because I did not probably have things under control. But all of those nerves that existed would have existed for Jesus' family as well. Hebrews 10 and verse 9 said he had a body prepared for him. But it was a body, Hebrews 2 and verse 14, a body of flesh and of blood, just like ours, right? And we know that when we're born, we have a body. And you can look back at the pictures and your body has changed over time. Your body is different, right? You start off as this little kid. And sometimes kids that are 
we're little chunky little babies and end up being tall and thin. You know, the body changes there over time. But Jesus had a body of flesh and blood as well. Jesus was a kid, just like we were. We read about Jesus in the temple when he was 12 years old. And we talked about that a couple months ago in a lesson, but how Jesus was there talking with the leaders, the, the teachers in the temple, and his mom and dad sort of come back and tiss-tissed a little bit. They go, like, you're supposed to be with us. And he told me, so I was no, I'm supposed to be about my father's business, is what he said. But, mom, you know, I always wonder, like, oh, but you're still supposed to be in the line with them here as well. Jesus had those characteristics as a child that he would grow into as well. He was in 1 Timothy 3 and 16, God manifested in the flesh. We talked about that already. He was subject to laws of development, like you said. He grew. He got bigger. I don't know how tall Jesus was, but I know he was taller when he died than he was when he was 12 years old. Than when he was born, because we all grow in that way. And he possessed a lot of human attributes as well. Matthew 4, verse 2, Jesus was hungry. I can see on the faces of some of you all right now, y'all are ready to go eat as well, right? Ready to stop this sermon pretty short and go get something to eat. Well, we all can relate to that, right? At about 11.30 on Sunday, it's starting to, belly starting to grumble just a little bit. Well, Jesus, we see in the Bible, was hungry as well. That's a human characteristic. John chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, he was weird. He was tired. The last couple of days, Dad and Will and I and some friends of ours spent the last two days in Lexington at the state football finals. In a suite, in a chair. I hadn't really done anything for two days. And I got home last night and I was killed. I was just wore out. Man, I'll tell you what, all that sitting down and not doing anything has gotten me tired. And so... We know what weariness is like when we've really been working. Jesus experienced that same thing as well. Jesus slept. Jesus experienced agony. Jesus showed compassion. He had sorrow and trouble. John 11, 30, John 11, 35 said Jesus wept. And he wept. Because it's free tonight. Do those resonate with us? Does that sound familiar to us? I know Jesus is the Son of God, but it sure seems like that Jesus' experience looked a whole lot like my experiences here on earth as well. But here's where it differs. Though he was human, Jesus was sinless. And that we can't relate to it. Hebrews 4 and 15, you know this verse, that he was in all points tempted, right? Well, we're in all points tempted as well. But there's a big difference. I fail every time. And Jesus passed every test. There's a big difference in what it is. What kept him sinless? Well, I don't know that it was him being the Son of God. Because if it had been him being the Son of God, then we would have looked at him just a little bit different. Those aren't really temptations if he's not really human. But because of Jesus' experience as a human, experience as a man, he had those same temptations that he had to face. Think back to when Jesus is out in the wilderness and, the, and Satan comes to him, right? He tempts him three different times. He offers him what? He offers him 
food. He offers him you know, a place to rest. He control over everything. And these are things that Jesus probably would have liked to have had. When you're hungry, something to eat. When you're able to, you know, to, to, with these, throw, you down, throw yourself down off, you can live through. That would show how much power. Well, Jesus said every time to Satan, something to the effect of, you shall not tempt the Son of God. And at the end, he says to get behind him. Well, I ain't got to say that to Peter. But nonetheless, Jesus faced these temptations along the way. But he resisted the devil. That's Matthew chapter 4 real quick. Matthew chapter 4. I should have, I skipped ahead. I told the story without reading it. I do want to read it, so I'm sorry. I do want to read it. I, my note page up here, I just messed it all up. But Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he fasted 40 days and nights, afterwards he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, You're the Son of God. Command that these stones become bread. I want to look at the three verses that Jesus says. Verse 4. He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When we're hungry, we solely think about food, right? When Jesus was hungry, he said, I'd like something to eat. But he was really more concerned with the preaching and teaching more of the Word of God, right? So that's where we're different. When it's hunger time, we're going to put everything else out of our mind and go get something to eat. Jesus was still about his Father's business. A little bit later, verses, uh, verse uh, 5, the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Sometimes when we have an opportunity to sort of show who we are, show our power a little bit, we might take that opportunity because that swells the pride up a little bit as well. Don't you know who I am? But Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus wasn't there to show off his skills to, to, against the devil right there. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you shall serve. Each time Jesus was presented with something, he went to God's word as his fight back against the temptation. So see, the humanity of Jesus here, he experiences the same things that we did. But what did he use to defeat it? Okay. Bible. When we face those issues, too often, this is the third or fourth or fifth line of defense. First of all, it's our, I'm stronger, I can get past this, I can handle it. Second of all, it doesn't really matter. I, I can handle it. it, it I'll get over it. But that's not what Jesus did. So but see, that's the difference between me and you and him is that he went there, but he went as an example for us. And too often we throw the examples away. He was made perfect through his suffering. What was that song that we sang there earlier today? Ready to suffer, right? Ready to go through difficult times. None of us want to do that. I don't know that Jesus was, was dying to do that, but we said at the beginning, he did it for us. So to conclude, Jesus was the Son of God. He was dead, but he left heaven for earth. 
Jesus gave his life, and that dual nature of him, the fact that he was the Son of God, but also, maybe we would use the Son of Man, allows him to be that mediator between the two. When we say those prayers, we direct them to God, but we funnel them through Jesus, right? Because Jesus understands what it means to be here facing our difficulties. And you know what's good about that? Is that will make him a righteous judge. I told some students in class the other day, the hardest thing about being a school teacher 20 years into it is the distance between me and them keeps getting wider. The first day I taught, I was eight years older than the kids that I taught. I knew what it was like to be 14. It's getting harder to know what it's like to be 14. Because when you're 42, I know what it was like to be 14 in 1995. And the songs that were on the radio in 1995 are now called oldies. So that is something that's a little complicated for you. But I say that because we can get kind of far away from who we're working with. But Jesus is our mediator is right there between me and you. Because Jesus experienced life on this earth just like we are. And Jesus knows what life on this earth was like. And when we think about a righteous judge, that's the role that he plays. And I'm grateful and thankful for it. Each time that we come together, we extend an invitation for you. And I'll do the same right there. But we know that Jesus came, he lived, and he died on the cross for us so that we can have an eternal home in heaven when this life is over. But it's up to us to follow through on our end of the deal. And if that is something that is needed from you, then I extend that invitation to you right now. It might be that you need to be baptized. The Bible talks about that. It might just be that you need the prayers in the church. These people are here to help you with that as well. But whatever it is, we extend you and invite you the opportunity to come while we stand and sing.